welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Our guest today is Amy Hawthorne, the Deputy Director of Research at POMED, a project on Middle East democracy in Washington, D.C. Amy is a Middle East expert with many years of experience working on Arab politics and U.S. Middle East policy in the NGO sector, in think tanks, and in the State Department during the Obama administration. And I'm delighted to have her as this week's podcast guest. Our subject is a troubled state of democratic projects in the Middle East and North Africa. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. You know how much I love this podcast. I'm delighted to be a guest. Thank you. Um, Look, I want to begin with a premise, a rather stark one, that the effort by primarily the United States to export democracy to the Middle East has been a spectacular failure. Now, you may well want to rebut me, but... If not, and you accept the premise, why do you think that is? Well, starting off with a nice provocative question. I like that. I do not accept the premise that the U.S. uh, attempt or effort to export democracy to the Middle East has been a spectacular failure because I don't think there has been a U.S. effort to export democracy to the Middle East. I think aside from the invasion and occupation of Iraq, which was carried out in the name of quote unquote spreading democracy, but in my view was primarily or almost entirely in fact about exporting American power to the region, reinforcing US hegemony in the Middle East and North Africa after the shock of 9-11. So I don't even think that the invasion and occupation of Iraq was really about an attempt to export democracy. Uh, Beyond Iraq, I don't think the U.S. has made any serious effort anywhere in this region to export democracy. So therefore, there's not much. um, We can't really evaluate whether the effort was a success or failure because it has never taken place. The main thrust of U.S. policy and also European policy in this region has continued to be, has been over many decades, and has conti- was over the last decade for the most part, and has continued now to be uh, either active support for authoritarian regimes or sometimes indifference about the existence of authoritarian regimes. Um, but the amount of attention and resources and effort that the U.S. has actually put into advancing democratic values and practices and upholding international human rights has been so paltry. It constitutes just a very, very, very small portion of the overall thrust of U.S. policy in this region, which is about um, stability, more or less, and and securing uh, so-called U.S. Uh, national security interests through authoritarian regimes. Well, all right. I, I stand. I stand rebutted. Uh, but let me let me then move on to Tunisia because that was seen as the bright light. It seemed to be evidence right. that democracy could succeed post Arab Spring. How concerned are you by current events in in Tunisia with Kais Saied seemingly on a path that takes Tunisia back to uh, potentially a dictatorship? So I am greatly concerned about the trajectory that uh, Tunisia has been on since July 25th of this year when President Kais Saied, who in the post-2011, post-revolution uh, Tunisian political system is meant to have 
a more limited role to share power with the head of government or prime minister as he or she is often referred to uh, and with parliament. Um, ever since his power grab uh, a little uh, almost three months ago, I guess, things have um, been heading in my view in a, in a very negative direction with regard to Tunisia's democratic experiment. And I can say a little bit more about why I'm so concerned, but I also want to underscore for your listeners who may not follow Tunisia that closely, Tunisia has been facing really serious challenges for several years now. And I think there's a certain amount of frustration among many Tunisians, uh, those who support Qaisayed's uh, kind of power grab uh, and those who oppose it, that the mounting uh, economic problems, Tunisia's economy has really been in, in very bad shape since the revolution and has gotten um, much worse during the pandemic. Uh, the economic situation has been bad. The socioeconomic situation has been bad. And Tunisia's political elite, who've been freely elected, governing the country uh, based on that, have really failed to use their democratically elected positions, their freely elected positions to address problems that the Tunisian public wants them to address and to actually try to improve living standards and, and provide, um, you know, dignity and social justice and all the things that Tunisians were demanding in the revolution. So Tunisia has been in a difficult spot, and I've been very concerned about Tunisia for some time. And as I was saying, I think there's a lot of Tunisians who feel, you know, hey, we've really been struggling here in recent years. Well, uh, Western governments and the international media constantly and kind of very superficially refer to us as this bright light or this um, Arab Spring success story. We who are living here in the country have become more and more frustrated with how our democratic system is not working for us. So to me, what has happened with Qaisayed is sort of the um, intensification and dramatic turn of events um, based on problems and frustration and discontent that has been building in Tunisia for many years. Um, so it's not something that just started on July 25th uh, when Qais Syed made his power grab. And indeed, uh, you know, he, I guess we could maybe say skillfully, if I could use that word, has, has exploited exploited the discontent that was growing to really a fever pitch in Tunisia this summer with a combination of a, of a dire economic situation and a terrible, terrible pandemic situation, and really the failure of the Tunisian government to get a handle on both of those sort of interlocked crises, and indeed to kind of um, act, at least in the, in the eyes of many Tunisians, as if um, the ruling elite didn't really need to address these problems and could really just kind of um, spend time keeping itself in power. That's been the perception. So um, the, the, the situation in Tunisia is very complicated. These problems have been long building and Qais Syed, I think, skillfully has exploited the situation of public discontent to make these very dramatic moves and begin to unilaterally change Tunisia's political system, its post-2011, post-revolution political system, um, in the name of Tunisia needing this dramatic change. He has a lot of popular support. That support is, is, is softening a bit, but he still 
has strong popular support because what a lot of Tunisians tell me is something needed to happen. We needed some kind of shock, some kind of break from the unten untenable status quo that they were living through. Well, that's interesting, Amy, and, and you raise a, a good point that um, the United States, Europe, UK, we all kind of said, right, democracy is in place, and, and we didn't perhaps take the steps we needed to to ensure that that democracy could really strengthen and grow and succeed. We kind of said, well, democracy is in place, job done. Well, I mean, I think that, first of all, I would say, Bill, that in my view, what's unfolding in Tunisia um, since 2011, and particularly since uh, 25 July, and Qaysayed's kind of a power grab is what I'm calling it, um, you know, the, the U.S. and European countries in the main have been supportive of Tunisia's democratic experiment. Um, they have been, I would say, um, not marginal players, but they've been peripheral players in what has primarily been a, a Tunisian process, Tunisian indigenous dynamics. And what is happening now in Tunisia is very, very much overwhelmingly the result of indigenous Tunisian dynamics. Where I would fault the United States and Europe is not for um, standing in the way of Tunisian democratization, which I personally do not believe that they, they have. I think they've, they've offered, you know, modest support and, and been um, on the right side of events over the past decade at sort of critical moments. Where I fault um, Western democracies in terms of their support for Tunisia is focusing way too much in their diplomatic engagement and in their aid packages on sort of the formal politics, the high politics, um, if you will. And those things are important, the development of, an, of a, a Tunis you know, helping Tunisians develop a really good system for the independent administration of elections so that elections can be more free and fair helping to develop the capacity of uh, the parliament to fulfill its duties, helping to strengthen some ministry's roles. So in and of themselves, in my view, uh, these things haven't been bad. It's just that there hasn't been nearly enough attention paid, um, in, in my opinion, by Western donors to what Tunisians themselves, ordinary Tunisians have been telling us in recent years matters most to them, which is the economy and their the lived economy, their daily lives, their daily experiences as Tunisians, uh, their economic experiences, and, and corruption, the failure of Tunisian authorities uh, since 2011 to make any serious effort to get a handle on corruption, whether it be corruption that took place under the Ben Ali regime that still has not really ever been seriously, you know, prosecuted uh, in, in a very, you know, meaningful way, I would say, um, and also the corruption in post-Ben Ali Tunisia that has proliferated and been a source of real frustration. So, uh, to you know, to Tunisians, to the Tunisian public. So I would say that, you know, the U.S. And, and Europe have been slow to recognize the discontent that was building in Tunisian society outside of the sort of formal political structure and formal high politics that are based in Tunis. Um, that, that is really uh, one of my major critiques of the U.S. and European role in Tunisia in recent years. Well, Amy, um, you mentioned corruption 
So let's move on to Iraq. The country has just concluded its parliamentary elections. I was somewhat staggered to learn that in addition to over 3,000 candidates competing for 329 seats, there are something like 167 parties. You could say that is an explosion of democracy, but in reality it's a measure of what Ronad Mansour at Chatham House calls politically sanctioned corruption. The uh, Dirashat al-Hassa, the special grades that enable political parties to control the civil service and institutionalize corruption on a massive scale. Meantime, the steady decline in voter turnout continues. So, do you see any positives coming out of the elections and Iraq's steps towards democracy? Well, I'm not sure. You know, Iraq is such a... Iraq's polity remains so, so deeply troubled in the wake of, of the U.S. invasion and occupation and then the fight against ISIS and everything that has happened uh, since 2003 in that country. Um, and politics, obviously, in Iraq since uh, the fall of this uh, Saddam Hussein regime have, have become very, very different um, than they were under, under the sort of totalitarian system that he ran. Certainly, under Saddam Hussein, there were no, um, you know, quasi-legitimate, quasi-free and fair elections of any kind. So I guess for those Iraqis who did participate in the vote, I can't speak for them, but perhaps they feel that, it, you know, with all the problems that Iraq has, at least now they have this opportunity to sort of vote for the people they would like to represent them. Um, so that opportunity of, of of having an election, of course, is separate from the outcome of that election and how uh, the, the, the Iraqis who are who are who are selected by the voters uh, behave once they're in office, as as um, you know, as Renat uh, Mansour sort of referred to in your in your quote of him, the corruption, the lack of accountability, the links with armed groups. I mean, the problems are so deep seated. There's a couple of potentially interesting things that have come out of this election that I, I mean don't seem maybe at this stage to be a game changer for Iraq, but. You know, one is that um, there were a surprisingly large number of candidates sort of put forward by the October 2019 protest movement um, that, of course, that was what precipitated holding these elections in Iraq a bit early um, in terms of those popular demands for new leaders. Their numbers are small, to be sure. Out of the 329 seats, I think it's about 20 or 30 candidates who come out of those those sort of that protest movement, um, anti-Iran, anti-militia, uh, anti-corruption, and in some cases sort of anti-sectarian. So they're not going to dominate uh, the parliament, but it is interesting that they did reasonably well um, in their sort of foray into electoral politics, from street protests to electoral politics. And they could at least be a presence and a voice in the parliament. I see that as somewhat interesting and potentially something that people in Lebanon are looking at carefully, those in Lebanon who are looking for ways to take the protest movement, um, the street protests in Lebanon, and convert that into formal political power, um, although the context, of course, of Iraq and Lebanon are very different in many ways. It does provide sort of an interesting example of this transition from 
um, street protests into formal politics that in, in other countries at least um, have not have not been successful. Um, but as I said, I mean, the overall situation in Iraq politically, economically, uh, security-wise, of course, remains, you know, I'm searching for the right word, troubled probably isn't a strong enough word. Um, and these elections are, are, are part of that troubled system. They're not going to change it as far as I can see. They're a product of it and who is elected and how the elections unfolded. And now, of course, there's at least one um, faction or party that is refusing to accept the results. <laughs> you know, It's a fragmented, shaky process, just as sort of politics in Iraq uh, writ large are often fragmented and shaky and contested legitimacy as well. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, shades of Donald Trump with uh, Fatah not getting the results that they wanted and declaring the election a forgery. Yes, <laughs> it's contagious. The Trump's, uh, you know, fake election fraud um, calls, I guess, are, are, are spreading. They, they hold appeal in other parts of the world. Another, another malevolent uh, product of the Trump years in America. Um, look, Qatar had a vote as well for the Shura Council on the 2nd of October. Uh, critics point out that it was heavily controlled by the ruling family with, among other things, restrictive rules in place about who could run. You know, I've, I've argued this is a step in the right direction, a small step, but perhaps I'm being naive. What do you think? Well, you know, I mean, politics in Qatar, there are politics in Qatar, just as there are in, in any country, in any polity. Um, the situation there is so unusual compared to other countries in, in, in the Arab region because of the small size, the small population, the extreme wealth. As you know well, I mean, Qatar is even very different than, than, uh, than Kuwait and, and Bahrain um, in terms of the sort of lack of, of formal, the, 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 you know, the, the, the lack of or weak structures for formal political participation. Of course, Bahrain since 2011 has been, um, you know, an incredibly repressive um, and I think just, just heartbreaking and terrible case. But prior to 2011, as we know, there, there's a long history in Bahrain of sort of organized opposition um, politics dating back many, many decades and in Kuwait as well. So Qatar doesn't have that tradition. So when viewed in comparison to some of its neighbors and when viewed in comparison to the Middle East and the, the sort of broader region, it, it's, it's just, um, I don't even know if we call it a half step, a quarter step, an eighth step forward. It's not that significant um, because this legislature uh, that has been elected has very little power. You know, Qatar is an is an absolute um, you know monarchy or emirate, however we're terming it. It it could be the elections, however, could be potentially a somewhat interesting development within the context of Qatari politics. Um, and within that country's own political dynamics, in the sense that these elections and the sort of primarily elected body that it has produced could be seen as a step toward institutionalizing a slightly more inclusive, if that's the right word, 
relatively more inclusive um, system of sort of absolute or authoritarian monarchical rule. So in that sense, for those who follow Qatar, it is a mildly interesting development, but uh, it, it, it's not, you know, I remember uh, being in Qatar in, uh, for the first, in the late 90s, for the first municipal election. Of course, there was just, you know, it was, there was one district, so it was just an election rather than election uh, elections. Um, and that was a moment, you know, that was a long time ago and during a period of previous political liberalization in the region. And that, I think, was more interesting because Qatar was taking a step that was different than some of its neighbors were taking at the time. Um, it's somewhat less interesting to me in sort of the current context of the region. Um, but I don't see it as right now as, an, as a negative step if it helps to broaden political debate a bit among the Qatari sort of political elite, I guess that could be seen as a big thing, as a good thing. We'll have to see. Time will tell sort of how this body performs and what it actually does or doesn't do. Yeah, I think that definitely is a watching brief. And uh, no women elected uh, to the Shura in Qatar nor uh, to Kuwait's parliament in their most recent election. However, I, I, I should say that uh, there were 97 women elected in the Iraqi, uh, to the Iraqi parliament. So uh, that's a positive. But, but I wanted to quote a piece uh, written for the Middle East Institute by Lina Abirafa. Uh, she's the director of the Arab Institute for Women. And she says, sure. the region must move towards feminist leadership at all levels as it is time to challenge and change existing power structures if we want the region to succeed. There is evidence for this. When women lead, we all benefit. It's the only hope the Arab region has. Um, and yet, Amy, women remain pretty much marginalized. Yes, uh, women across the MENA region, across the, the Arab region, uh, do remain, for the most part, there are some important kind of exceptions, but for the most part, they do remain um, very marginalized in formal politics, um, very, very underrepresented in elected positions and in positions of governance. And this region, you know, there, there are many uh, factors contributing to that state of affairs. Uh, an overriding one is that this region, um, all of these countries to one degree or another are still, you know, patriarchies. And it's been proven, you know, that's a very, very difficult thing to change. Um, there's a lot of men in the region who don't support women having a, a bigger, you know, um, sort of political role. There's a lot of women in the region who don't support other women having a bigger political role. But, you know, the experience of women, the women's rights movements in this region, the feminist movements in this region, you know, they're very long-standing and they've gone through a lot of different experiences over the years and we sh when we're looking at the status of women or I should say more more interestingly perhaps the struggle for women's political social um, you know economic rights that that struggle is still taking place in every country in the region in a different form and some really interesting things have happened in recent years even as formal politics, for the most part, often you know continue to be um, a place that is very difficult for women uh, women to enter, 
um, through elections or through being appointed to you know positions of real authority in a cabinet. There's been very interesting developments in recent years having to do with um, women standing up against sexual harassment, sexual uh, assault, organized movements in many countries, um, in large part taking place online. There have been um, many other interesting social movements, and there's indeed a new generation of, of women leaders who have come uh, at the local and national levels, who have come, come of age since 2011, and they're really pushing for things that maybe 10 or 20 years ago would have thought even impossible to raise in public, uh, sensitive and taboo subjects. So the picture is complex for women, but overall, we know that women, you know, the Arab world in general, the economic situation is bad. In many countries, the, uh, there are active uh, violent conflicts continuing, uh, Yemen, Syria, Libya, uh, etc., um, you know, Palestine, um, and women often disproportionately suffer in those economic and um, conflict crises. And so overall, we can say that the picture for women in this region um, tends to be a very, very difficult one day to day. Mm, yeah. Uh, let, let's look at Egypt. Uh, the rise of what could be described as a near fascist dictatorship there under President Sisi. Uh, it's concerning, but President Biden, as with other presidents before him, seems happy to put security concerns ahead of human rights, justice, and accountability. It's just 10 months ago that the Biden administration um, you know, put forward the pledge, his pledge, that uh, human rights is at the center of our foreign policy. Uh, what's what's happened? <laughs> yeah, well, talk is cheap, right? Uh, Biden did say that during the campaign. He made a lot of promises during the campaign about relating to sort of the U.S. position on, on human rights in certain Arab countries, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. He described it under the leadership of Mohammed bin Salman as a pariah state. I mean, we remember those very strong words during the campaign. So talk is cheap. What What I find a bit perplexing and I have some ideas why this is happening, but why Biden and his top officials continue, uh, not just during the campaign, but now that they've been in office for, for 10 months or so, they continue to repeat this rhetoric about putting uh, human rights and, and the support for, for democratic values at the quote unquote, as you said, center of US foreign policy. It is um, a bit surreal, at least in the region that I study, the Middle East and North Africa, because nowhere in this region is the U.S. government putting human rights at the center of its uh, relations with, with any of these countries. And if that were ever to happen, we would see a completely different policy. We'd see um, you know, a dramatic reduction or zeroing out in arms sales and military and security aid. We'd see a significant boost in um, development assistance. We'd see the U.S. government engaging much more with uh, non-governmental actors, with activists and um, community leaders, people in the region who are not part of these oppressive regimes. <laughs> you know, we'd see a totally different policy. It is sort of notable that the administration keeps talking about this, and I've been trying to figure out why 
they keep using this rhetoric when, you know, these are very, very smart people who Biden has selected for these key positions, national security advisor, secretary of state, etc. They know <laughs> that the human rights are not at the center of U.S. policy toward the Middle East in any country. So I think that it has something to do with uh, kind of trying to create a narrative around what they want the U.S. brand to be seen as across the globe in the world. It's not so much of a message, I think, to the authoritarian leaders in this region who maybe were, some of them were a bit apprehensive when Biden was elected that he might be a lot tougher than Trump. And he certainly has pushed on these issues more than Trump has, but that's you know such a low bar. I think that um, Biden is, and his team really want to create this narrative, push out this message of the U.S. brand globally that um, in a way to not only distinguish Biden from Trump, but also distinguish the United States from China. So I see it as more part of this global messaging strategy that has these sort of broader aims, but with almost very, very, very little substance to it when it comes to the Middle East and North Africa. And as we know, the United States, whether Republican or Democratic administrations since George W. Bush have a long history of making very, with the exception of Donald Trump, of course, a long history of making very grandiose statements about U.S. support for democracy in the Middle East. Um, We could really cringe if we read ourselves, you know, reread some of the things that President Obama said after the Arab Spring. Um, History of, of grandiose rhetoric and very little action, meaningful action, sort of in day-to-day engagement with this region on behalf of human rights. And the problem is, you know, we might say, I said talk is cheap, but it's not that cheap because when the gap continues to grow between rhetoric and reality, it just creates sort of more cynicism, more skepticism. I think it's corrosive um, to sort of, um, you know, how the U.S. is perceived around the world. So in some ways, I think it would actually be better if the Biden administration stopped talking about this and put their efforts more into actually doing something um, with regard to a more, much more significant and meaningful effort on behalf of human rights in the region. But I'm not super optimistic because traditionally uh, U.S. leaders, U.S. administrations just don't really care that much about these issues um, in countries where we are very friendly with the autocratic leaders. So I expect that to continue. Uh, Lots of talk, very little action until there's some sort of crisis in one of these countries that will force or maybe perhaps across the region that will force the U.S. to kind of reevaluate its uh, its stance on these things. Mm, That's uh, that's very interesting, Amy, uh, casting it uh, as a branding exercise, one that plays on the global stage, but not to the MENA region. Um, I wanted finally uh, to give you one other quote, this time from the New York Times. It's from Tariq Megarisi, an Arab Digest contributor and a senior fellow at the European Council for Foreign Relations. And uh, here's what Tariq wrote. The Arab Spring will continue, no matter how much you try to repress it or how much the environment around it changes, desperate people will still try to secure their rights. Now, that's coming from a young Arab analyst, and it strikes me as something that's both defiant and hopeful. A good note to end on? Yes, I 
I share his assessment that the struggle for human rights, for justice, for human dignity um, on the part of the people of this region, especially the younger generations, um, will continue. And if you look closely across the region, even in the most repressive societies, you can see Arab citizens who believe in these things uh, doing extraordinary things on behalf of these ideas and these values and these goals and taking extraordinary risks um, to fight for what they believe in. So the desire of people, of ordinary people to live uh, not under oppression, to live freely, to live with dignity, um, to be able to breathe that air of freedom and, and feel more justice as, as citizens of these countries, um, I have no doubt that that is going to continue and continue to emerge in new and interesting ways. And one of the things I think that I find hopeful in this sort of bleak situation for rights and freedoms across the region is that the activists who are coming of age now, uh, who were much younger 10 years ago when the revolutions, the uprisings took place, they're actively trying to learn lessons. What can we do? How can we build on the experience of those who came before us? What can we do differently? How can we achieve more? Um, what did they do right? There's a lot of attempts at sort of learning and reflection going on in the activist community. And I find that uh, hopeful. And I continue to just be amazed every day by sort of the bravery and courage of people in these countries uh, standing up for, for what they know is right and what is just against incredible odds. I find that uh, very inspiring. Amy, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bill. It was a pleasure being with you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was POMED's Amy Hawthorne. We welcome your comments. If you're not already an Arab Digest member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a special rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on arabdigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. (laughs) 